Good morning. I'm Joy Carol Miller. I've been a member of Valley Creek Baptist Church for several years. When I married my husband, J.W., I also married Valley Creek Baptist Church. I've been with the church since it was a little white building across the way over here. Then we came to this side of the street and constructed the, the portion of the building that is the fellowship hall right now, and then added on this structure. So I've seen great growth during that period of time, not only in buildings, but also in ministry. I think this is a church with a big heart, a heart for missions, and a heart for serving others. I have been asked today to join in by reading the scripture. I'm sorry, I will not have the version that's on the screen, but maybe you can make comparisons. I will be reading from Luke, chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, and verses 47 through 53, in preparation for the Easter season. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Jesus went to the chief priests, and Judas went to the chief priests and the uh, officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike them with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this church and for the ministry that it has conducted throughout the years. We pray that you will continue to be with it. We pray, Lord, that now that COVID has, is subsiding, that the missions and the ministries of the church can expand and cover the world. We pray, Father, particularly for the Ukrainians today and for the, dis, uh, the destruction of lives and property in that area of the country. We pray, Lord, that it would come to an end and that end would be soon. We pray, Father, for our uh, pastor search committee. We pray for them to be united in their effort and be leading, being led by you. We pray also, Father, for that person that you have for this church 
and we pray that the two groups shall meet soon. We thank you for Brother Garrison and for his willingness to come and share with us during this time. We pray that you will be with him as we begin this series of messages leading up to Easter. We will go from the betrayal to the trials, to the cross, to death. But there is that glorious resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so very much for sharing our passage this morning. And you will notice over the next several weeks that this is going to be part of our practice to hear the word read before you as we dive into this season. Today marks the first day of spring. Did you know this morning is the launch of the spring season? And... It is also the conclusion for some of you of another season of your life called March Madness. Because the madness is over, the cats are out, and even Murray State, the one hope we had, has been defeated. But we are also entering a season leading up to Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is one month away from today. And as we gather together over the next several weeks... We're going to be pointing our attention and pointing our focus toward the cross. We're beginning a new series today called Surrounding the Cross. And we're going to take steps each and every week as we gather closer and closer to what we will see ultimately in Jesus' death and resurrection. And as we make those steps, we're going to do some investigation. We're going to do some interviewing of the people who surrounded the cross. Maybe not necessarily at the foot of the cross, but who were involved in Jesus' death. Uh, Several years ago, it's been probably 10 now, I was in a small group on a Sunday morning Bible study with a group of adults, a mixed couples class. And a question was posed to the group, why should we, in the New Testament, have four different eyewitness accounts are four different testimonies of Jesus's life. Why is there four, not just one? Why when the gospels come forth and the Bible comes forth, why do we have four different accounts of what took place in Jesus's life? And honestly, as a seminary graduate a couple times, I never really thought about the why. But one of the gentlemen in our Sunday school class was a state trooper. Now, I I mentioned last week that I have been a successful graduate of traffic school. I want you to know not all of my illustrations have to do with dealings with the police. He just happened to be in my small group, and he was a state trooper for, obviously, the Kentucky State Police. He was a big dude, about 6'6", big, big fella, uh, shaved head, you know, kind of had the look, the intense look, but he was a dear brother. And he said, well, I'm not sure I can answer this directly, but let me give you something that happens in my world. He said in his 10, 15 years of being in the Kentucky State Police, he had investigated hundreds of accidents, hundreds of traffic incidents. And he said that if you just interviewed the person who got hit, you would never, ever see the full story. Or if you just interviewed the one doing the hitting, you would never have the full story. 
because their perspectives, the one in the car being hit or the one doing the hitting are very, very different, especially if they think the police is gonna give an insurance report. I was just sitting there, sir, or I was driving the speed limit, sir. So you interview those directly involved, but you also interview the witnesses. Because sometimes if you step a little outside those directly involved, you actually get a clearer picture of what took place, those that were not maybe so up close and personal. And it's only when you survey all from every direction and every point of view and everyone directly and indirectly involved can you get the clearest picture of what really took place. Man, when I heard him give that answer, I was blown away by the clarity that we have in our New Testament for accounts of what took place. And the event that they're all describing is the same, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But they give different perspectives and they give different points of view and they share different details that collectively all together give the most clear explanation of what actually took place. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, and I invite you to bring your Bibles with you because we'll need to look at different sections of these four accounts and really dive in on all the details. We're going to look at the Roman governor who ultimately gave the sentence for Jesus' death. We're going to look at the apostle Peter who says he will die for Jesus and then yet within 12 hours denies him. We're going to look at the two criminals who were on each side of Jesus and the centurion who ultimately stood at the foot of the cross and saw it all unfold. We'll go to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday and we will see Jesus ascend the Sunday after. That's the plan. But this morning, we begin in the surrounding of the cross with a man whose name is synonymous with one thing and one thing only. We're going to study Judas, uh, the betrayer. Judas is a major figure in the crucifixion of Jesus. And as you heard, his betrayal is one that we all know of. We all are familiar with Judas, the betrayer. But this morning, I want to unpack who he is in his life and then ask, can we learn anything from him? Can we learn anything from his life? So the order of the message simply is, let's figure out who he was and then answer, can we learn anything from him? Who was Judas Iscariot? Well, if you still have your Bibles open, the text we read was from Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 And we learn in Luke chapter 22 in two places that Judas was one of the 12. He was one of the 12 disciples. Luke chapter 22 verse 3 tells us Judas called Iscariot who was of the number of the 12. Verse 44, the man called Judas one of the 12 was leading them. He was one of the 12 disciples. The betrayer of Jesus was called by Jesus. You ever thought about that? The one who would ultimately lead to Jesus' betrayal, 
lived with Jesus for over three years. He walked with Jesus. He had meals with Jesus. They were a traveling band of brothers. And so he was with Jesus in the areas around Galilee and Samaria. He was with Jesus in Bethany and in Jericho. He traveled with Jesus to Jerusalem several times. He's with Jesus for over three years up close and personal. He saw all the miracles that Jesus performed. He witnessed all the healings that Jesus enacted. He heard all the sermons that Jesus preached and he saw the crowds day in and day out as Jesus interacted with them. The scripture tells us that he has an important role within the group. John chapter 13 verse 29 tells us that Judas was the carrier of the money bag. He's the treasurer of the group. He's the one holding the purse strings, if you will. When the disciples have needs, they have things they need to procure by, they actually let Judas go and take care of the transactions. Multiple people support the ministry of Jesus and Judas is the one that kind of keeps it all collected and when needs come up, he takes care of getting things. And if you look at his life in the Gospels, there is nothing overtly noticeable to indicate that he would betray Jesus in the end. Even when Jesus tells the twelve in the upper room, the Last Supper, that one of you are going to betray me, none of them go, oh yeah, we know who it is, this guy. We've seen it all along, we know him. No, they all start asking each other, is it me, Lord? Am I the one? There is nothing noticeable in that 12 that he is going to be the betrayer. But we know that even with three years in Jesus's ministry, up close personal experience with Jesus himself, we know that Judas never believed. He never believed. He walked beside Jesus, but he never had faith in Jesus. John chapter 6 verse 64, Jesus is speaking to the 12 and ultimately to all who had gathered as his listeners grew. He said, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So while the disciples didn't know While the other 11 had no idea it was Judas, Jesus knew. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas did not truly believe. He walked with them, lived with them, heard everything, observed everything, but it never translated to belief. It never became something that he truly believed in. And yet, Judas is part of a plan that God is unfolding. You see, he was one of the 12 who never truly believed and ultimately Judas was used by Satan. Back to our main text in Luke chapter 22, it says, then Satan entered Judas. Satan entered him. Now, that's the very clear explanation of what took place. It's very simple Satan had a plan to enter into the heart of Judas. 
Uh, John's gospel in the sixth chapter mentions that this is something like what's going to happen. Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? One of you is going to be the one who ultimately betrays me. But in that moment, there was something that took place where Satan had a part in Judas's life. The scripture tells us in John chapter 13, they were in the upper room and Jesus has washed their feet, all 12 of them. And he has begun to explain to them that he is going to leave them, but he's going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will be with them. And they're all wondering, what does this mean? And he explains a lot of the end time activity And at some point he says, and one of you in this very room are going to betray me. And they all ask, who is it? Is it me? Is it him? Who is it, Lord? And then John, who is referred to in his gospel as the beloved disciple who loves Jesus with all his heart, he leans against Jesus's chest and he asks, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one to whom will dip his bread in my cup. And then he turns to Judas and gives him the cup and tells him to go and do what he has planned to do quickly. Friends, he was used by the enemy to bring about the death of God's son. And I just want to say something here. Just as... We are convinced and assured of the presence and the reality of God, the Father, God Almighty. Just as we are assured and convinced of the presence and reality of Jesus, the Son, we need to also be very aware and very assured that there is the enemy of God, Satan, the adversary. He is not a fictitious myth. He is not some legend. He is not some make-believe character. As assured as we are that God exists, you can be assured that there is an enemy in this world who is in opposition to everything God loves and in everything that God plans. Satan was at work. But praise be to God, Satan's work is always thwarted by the greatness and the glory of our God. Amen? He's used by Satan to set Jesus up, to put Jesus in a trap. And ultimately that leads Judas to be paid by the priest. If you're still with me in Luke chapter 22, verse 4 and 5 says, He went away and he conferred with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad, of course they were glad. They'd been looking for an opportunity to seize Jesus and to arrest Jesus and to present Jesus as a violent rebel. And they agreed to give him money. How much money? We all know this because it's come to us as part of our learning about Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 and 15. The scripture tells us how much the money was. And Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and they said, and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Oh, 30 silver coins. Those coins in today's money in 2022, depending on the weight, 
depending on the purity of the silver, might be $70, $80. It's been more in times past and it could go down in a heartbeat if cryptocurrency still becomes a thing. Gold, silver, all the metals are quite volatile, but let's just, let's just call it even $70. Let's just say in today's money is what it was then in that day. $70 is the paid price for Jesus' betrayal. $70 is the amount that he received. And friends, I will tell you that really the amount doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things. Sometimes we get hung up that Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but the reality is he was gonna sell Jesus out for any price. They just happened to offer 30 in the agreement. The payment is second because used by Satan, willing to betray part of God's plan, God is allowing this to unfold because every step and every place in this leading to the cross, Judas is simply a part of a bigger picture. He's part of a bigger plan. God is ultimately going to allow Satan to work and Judas to betray for the purpose for us to be saved. It is all part of what God is allowing to unfold. And so with that 30 pieces of silver, he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Betrayed him with a kiss. Luke chapter 22, verse 47 and 48, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Now, Mark's gospel gives a little hint as to what this was all really to do. Mark 14, 44 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, much has been said about the kiss. It is certainly a sign of friendship. It's a sign of familiarity. It's a sign of a greeting. It's a sign that Jesus and Judas know each other. You don't usually kiss perfect strangers, especially not in the middle of the night. And some have made the connection, and I'm not so sure I go with them all this way, but they say, oh, this is really a sign that, Jesus, that Judas loved Jesus. That he thinks what he is doing is the right thing. He thinks what he is doing is a good thing, that by kissing Jesus, he is ushering in Jesus' kingdom and ushering in Jesus' rule and reign as the king of the Jews, that he's He's helping Jesus move along in his steps toward the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will deliver them from their oppressors. Others have even said that Judas is showing his loyalty and his devotion to Jesus because of that kiss. Almost like you kiss a king on the hand or people kiss the Pope on his ring. Judas is kissing Jesus to show his loyalty. I think both of those are a bunch of hullabaloo. I think Judas knew exactly what he was doing. I think Judas had told the guard, 
so not to create a commotion, so not to wake up all the disciples, so not to break out in a war or a battle. He tells them, I'm gonna go right up to the man who you wanna seize and I'm gonna kiss him on the cheek and when I kiss him, you grab him and it's done, it's quick, it's a snatch and grab. That's my theological explanation for the kiss. But undoubtedly, he kisses him. And Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus is not, he's not confused about Judas's purposes. He actually asks him, Judas, are you going to betray me with a kiss? And oh, that comment, oh, rabbi, teacher, his speaking to Jesus in familiarity is simply just to give the sign. Now, a commotion breaks out and a attack takes place and we'll study Apostle Peter who is the one who draws his sword and lops off the ear of one of the priests in the guard and Jesus miraculously even while being seized even while being arrested he somehow gets a hold of the cut off ear and he puts it back on the head of the guy who lost it Jesus is doing surgery in the garden He's got a betrayal going on. He's got guards around him. He's probably seized behind the arms and, and his, he's probably all in this distressed moment, but he's still healing and he's still doing miracles. Well, how does it all end for Judas? And this is my conclusion on this first segment. Are y'all still with me? Are we doing okay? The Gospels have Judas kissing Jesus and then he's gone. He's not at the trials. He's not at the beating that Jesus undertook and he's definitely not at the cross. He's completely gone, off the scene. He does his deed and he disappears. But the Gospel of Matthew gives us one more hint as to when he shows back up. Matthew chapter 27, verse three through five. And we don't exactly know when this takes place. The time and hour is lost to history, but the impact is never less the same. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, what is it to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. His life ends very tragically. At some point, he becomes aware of what he's done. He becomes aware of what his actions had led to. And I would sense that maybe the work of Satan that entered him has now departed him and his clarity of mind has returned and his recognition of what unfolded is now in full sight. He knows he has betrayed Jesus and ultimately that's led to the condemnation of Jesus. It could be that in this timeline, Jesus is already dead and he returns the money, throws it on the ground and confesses that he has betrayed innocent blood. But it's too late. The deed is done. The act has been carried out. And he can't reverse what part he played. So I ask you, is there anything we can learn from this man's life? 
Is there anything that we can gather from the lessons learned from Judas? Well, I have three, and they're going to come really quick. The first principle I think is true and that we can learn is that you can be around believers but not truly believe. You can be around people of faith and not be a person of faith yourself. For three years, three and a half years maybe, Judas is around believers every day, every hour, every minute, eating, sleeping, walking, traveling, hearing the words of Jesus, seeing the miracles of Jesus, seeing the power of Jesus. He's on the boat when Jesus walks on the water. He's in the boat whenever Jesus calms a storm. He's in the background when Jesus calls Lazarus from the dead. He sees the lame walk. He sees the people who are blind now able to see. He sees the paralytic pick up his mat and go home. He saw everything. He's around them nonstop for three, three and a half years. And just because he's around them, it has not translated to belief himself. You can be around believers, but not truly believe. Your proximity to people of faith does not equate personal faith yourself. You can have parents who are believers, a spouse who's a believer. You can have children who are believers, best friends who are believers, co-workers who are believers. You can be around believers in every sphere of your life and yet not believe. It's because belief is a personal choice. Belief is a personal commitment. Belief is something between you and you and the Lord alone. All of the others around you who are people of faith can't make you believe anymore. All the people around you can't make you something you don't want to be. It's all a matter of your own personal commitment. And even if you're around good, wonderful Christian people, solid Christians who walk the faith, who live the faith, who know what it means to walk with the Lord, who study the word, who pray devotedly, who give and sacrifice, just because of all that they do, it does not translate to you personally. The reality is at the coming end of every person's life, We're going to stand before the gates of heaven and we're going to hear one of two things from the voice of Jesus. Either I knew you or I never knew you. And you can't say in that moment, well, what about my mama? What about my daddy? What about my husband? What about my wife? What about my kids? It's not going to matter about what others have believed. It's going to matter what you believe. So you can be around believers, but not truly believe. Secondly, and this is a heavy, heavy principle, and this is a heavy message. I can feel it. You can feel it. It's in, it's hard to have a message of hope in the title, the betrayer. But let me just say this. Anyone can be tempted to do terrible things. Anyone can can be tempted to do terrible things. The reality is, we all can be tempted by the enemy, 
by our own physical desires, by bad influences in our lives. We all can be tempted by our own motivations to do things that are absolutely terrible. You have that capacity. I have that capacity. We can do terrible things because at the core of who we are is a heart that the scripture says is bent and directed toward evil. And there are influences around us and there are temptations around us that are very, very real. And they can draw us toward disobedience. They can draw us away from our faith in God and a desire to do what we would have never thought possible. Friends, I have been around many good, honest Christian people who find themselves in terrible temptation and they do horrendous things. And at the moment, and at the moment of their actions, they're not gonna use the phrase, well, Satan entered my heart or Satan caused me to do this. They're not gonna say the devil made me do it. But they are just as capable of terrible as you and I. And the reality is all of us will face temptation, some small, some large. And we need to be assured that we have a hope and an assurance and a promise that when we face the worst of temptations, God our Father is giving us strength to withstand temptation. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Yet God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. In Judas's life, the temptation of the enemy came upon him and he obeyed it and he went straight through with the betrayal. And all of us have the same capacity to betray our God. But we also have a God who provides a way of escape, a God who provides a way out. And that if we will lean on him in those moments of temptation, if we'll really trust on him when we're feeling our absolute weakest, we will see that God in the split second before we act will give us a moment of clarity, a moment of conscious thought that he will provide a way out. And if we will be willing, he will walk us through faithfully to resist temptation and to walk firmly with him. That's the promise of our God. It's just, will we lean on that promise? And lastly, and I'd like to invite the praise team just to join me here in this last point. In the life of Judas, we see brokenness in willful disobedience. Brokenness. And we are tempted to do terrible things. And when that occurs, there is a brokenness. He went back to the temple, threw the pieces of silver down on the ground. He went back to the temple and recognized all that he had done. He went back and confessed, I am guilty of innocent blood. And ultimately, he ends his own life. You see, sin feels good in the moment feels good in the, in the act. Even can give a sense of adrenaline or the greatest of pleasure. But when the rush is over, you will feel the consequences 
in the form of shame and guilt, regret and remorse. I've asked a question of my students for many, many years, particularly students who are not of faith. We have students who come to our university from all over the world and from all over the country and even here in Kentucky, and they most certainly do not have to be a follower of Jesus to attend Campbellsville University. But for years now, I've asked a question of every one of my students. What do you feel when you sin? And some of them will not even have a recognition of what that word sin means, but they will immediately know that that refers to doing something wrong or to breaking one of God's commands or to even disobeying their parents or committing a crime. They all know what it means inwardly. And so they'll say things like, well, I feel really bad. I feel sorry. I wish I hadn't done it. I I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. If anybody ever found out, man, I would be humiliated. You know, it's a universal experience No matter if you're a believer or not, when you do things wrong, you have this feel, you have this shame, you feel this sense of regret. And I believe that is God's universal way of letting us know, one, that there is right and wrong, and that even in the consequences of our sin, we feel something sad. And I think Judas felt sad. He felt broken. But it then leads me to the cross and it leads me to the hope. It gives me an opportunity with every one of my students to say, but do you know there has been something done for that feeling and for that sin? There has been something that has taken place that exchanges that fear and regret and embarrassment for the sense of peace and transformation and hope. You see, if you continue going to the cross, you continue going to Jesus' death, you will see that on the cross, he dies for our sin and for our shame. He dies for our guilt and our embarrassment. He dies for all the sin that we commit in the past, the present, and the future. And through his death and his payment of blood, we are forgiven and we are made clean and we can stand right before a holy God and we can be freed from regret and remorse. It's only through the cross of Jesus and his death and resurrection do we ever come above the consequences of sin and see the hope that he has for us. And that is why we go to the cross. That's why we look fully at the cross because there is the intersection of a holy God and sinful people coming together and it's the sacrifice of God's one and only son that all who are sinners can be made saints and all of our sin he atones for. Hallelujah for the cross. And that's why we go there. Not because of anything we've done, but everything because of what Jesus has done. Not because we could ever earn it but because Jesus died so that we could live with him forever. Amen. Friends, sin will always take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you far more than you want to pay. But praise be to God, Jesus died so that sinners could be saved and set free. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. A message on Judas probably seems a little counterproductive. 
there is hope even in the midst of betrayal. Maybe this morning, in hearing the tragic life of the betrayer, you recognize you, you've betrayed your God. Maybe not to the extent of Judas, but in disobedience and falling to temptation. And today you just want to come and confess and look and lean on the cross. Maybe this morning you would say, I've been around believers, but I'm not one myself. When I look to the cross, I now see Jesus fully as the one who died in my place. And I want to trust him by faith and commit my life to him and to him alone. We're going to sing a song of invitation and I'm going to invite you to sing along, to stand, but you can pray where you are. You can come to the altar and pray alone. If you want someone to pray with you, I would be honored. There will be others. However God has spoken to your heart today, I'm going to invite you to respond. So dear Lord, we come to you now in this moment of prayer and response, and I pray if there be any decision, anyone who needs to follow you today, that today they would come to the cross see you, Jesus, for who you really are. If there be any who need to confess and repent and turn their life back to you, I pray that you would prompt them to do so by your spirit. Lord, whatever needs to take place in this time, we'll be in obedience right now to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.